What we're seeing pretty consistently, actually, is that if you had a sector or group of stocks that kind of over-earned or over-grew during the pandemic, odds are they're now going to under-earn and undergrow. Netflix is a powerful example. It happened with Peloton. It happened with video games. Right. But you're also seeing the flip side of that. Sectors that were under-earning or were under all kinds of extreme pressure are now over-earning because you had supply-side damage. You now have a smaller amount of, of capacity in the system, and it's leading to these blowouts in pricing. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the QPD Podcast. On today's show, we have Cambiar President Brian Barish back to discuss current market conditions. A lot has happened since Brian last joined our show just over three months ago. So we thought it would be great for him to come back and discuss some of the latest market developments and if his outlook for 2022 has changed. Brian, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Jim. Before we get into the specifics, how are you feeling about the markets these days? Like I said, a lot has happened just over really three months, both with the macro environment as well as the micro. So I'd love to get your thoughts as to where you sit today with respect to markets. Sure. So a few things have happened that we expected. The first is that you have have seen as the Fed moves towards renormalization, we can talk about that more, that the speculative class of stocks has really pancaked. It's been uh, pretty staggering losses uh, there. Secondly, as we also discussed uh, late last year, Omicron was a very quick surge, and now we've moved to kind of the herd immunity phase, or alternatively, we're just not going to keep doing this anymore in terms of these restrictive COVID type of policies. So that's a positive in my mind, but it is one that we expected. I think one thing that we weren't totally clear on late last year was just how aggressive the Fed might need to be. Last time you were here, you discussed at length about Fed policy. You've just kind of touched on it briefly here. So when you think about inflation, interest rates, this is pretty much the rage today, as you've seen rates rise rapidly and the Fed starting to react and at least acknowledge that the inflation pressures are real. Can you discuss that at length, how that might be impacting portfolios? Uh, Could it cause a recession? You know, that's been the topic of discussion as well. Yeah, so there's been a pretty loud chorus of uh, people across the spectrum politically and in terms of their academic leanings uh, with respect to economics, critical of the Fed, like, guys, you you should have started moving some time ago. And we were part of that chorus. And it's very clear that the Fed has been off. I think the central tension going forward is, you'll, you'll hear the soft landing, hard landing, somewhat hard landing conversation. So the Fed by having, I think, stepped off the ultra-accommodative policy too late, they do have a tough challenge on their hands. So we are at essentially 0% unemployment. And there's, there are people that are unemployed, but there's more job openings than there are unemployed people. So being unemployed is a 100% voluntary decision right now. We need to get back to there being some labor slack in Fed speak. It doesn't have to be huge, but, but some labor slack. So how do you get there? Well, we have very little population growth in the U.S., so what you need to do is get the economy to a point where it grows more slowly than your rate of productivity growth. So productivity growth is about 1.5%, maybe 2% at best. So you would need to be growing at 1% or slower to get there. Can they really manage to do that, to fly at that low of an altitude and not actually slip into an outright recession? 
people are understandably very skeptical about. I'm understandably very skeptical about that. I do think when people throw around that R word, the recession word, you know, people conjure up the last two recessions, which was COVID, which was awful, and the recession that was a consequence of the global financial crisis of 2008, which was practically a depression. I don't think either of those are the right model, okay? It might be more like what we had in the early 2000s, which was barely statistically a recession. I mean, GDP growth was like negative 0.1% a couple of quarters. That's literally all you had. But we do need to create that labor slack, which means not all businesses are going to grow. Some are going to contract. Some are, gonna, are not going to make it. And that's, that's basically what we're staring at. The area that is, I would say, a big unknown, but, but generally something to be concerned about is balance sheet roll-off. And, and we also talked about that late last year. It's not clear how stimulative or contractionary balance sheet expansion or balance sheet shrinkage are. The Fed themselves, they don't have a very good model of this. The Fed has talked about openly that they're going to do $95 billion a month of balance sheet shrinkage. That's much faster than they did back in 2017 and 2018. But the balance sheet's much bigger, so they, they need to go much faster. And obviously, we have a bigger inflation problem. I've read that based on various people's modelings, $95 billion of balance sheet shrinkage is about equal to 80 basis points on the Fed funds rate. Okay. So if you said that the Fed got to 2.25% and they're doing balance sheet shrinkage uh, of that size, that would be equal to something in the low threes as a functional matter. So the quirky thing about QE is what it winds up doing in the financial system. So what it winds up doing is it suppresses risk premiums. Besides uh, maybe holding down long-term interest rates, which them themselves contain risk, but if the Fed's buying a lot of the long-term treasuries, then those, those risks are, are suppressed a bit, is it also suppresses risk premiums in, in corporate bonds, in, in mortgage-backed bonds, and in, in equity uh, risk premiums. So the framework that I'm using is that we are seeing a reintroduction of equity risk premiums in places where they, they haven't been or where they've been very suppressed. And, and we're also going to see a increase in risk premiums in other more easily measured uh, areas like corporate bonds. That process, this is a subtle point, but it's a very important point, that reintroduction of risk premiums, that process is, is very necessary. But we've been operating with suppressed risk premiums for most of the last 14 years and with a really kind of crazy period in the last two. That, that is, that is going to be uncomfortable. That is, is going to hurt. And I think when you look at the market today, so we're, we're doing this in the middle of April, it, various measures of market sentiment are terrible. They're like as bad as they've been since 2009 when we were in a, you know, a borderline depression and we're not in anything resembling that economically, maybe that's why is people kind of know, like, this is going to happen. There, there's no stopping it. Like, like, don't get too negative when you hear me say that, because the market is forward-looking, and, and multiples have come down, and, and the market has begun the process of reintroducing these risk premiums. But 
I would also tell you that we've got a long ways to go, and, and the Fed has barely done anything. They've, there's just kind of been a bull market in talking about doing things, and you know the next step is 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 maybe gonna gonna hurt a bit more. I think our audience would appreciate. Does that mean that the suppression of risk premium, higher rates, a shift in the types of equities that work? Is that what you're referring to? I think you know there's been a shift as far as what's been working. We've seen deeper value financials, uh, energy start to perform better. Is that what you're referring to as far as this sentiment shifting towards those types it, of securities? That's definitely part of it. Uh, I'm going to focus on an area that we, we're not really involved in materially, which is the disruptors, right? So there's been you know a bull market in stocks that are disruption stocks. People have kind of fallen in love with them. Mm-hmm. A disruptor is a stock who you know doesn't make a lot of money, maybe doesn't make any money, so their cost of equity is sort of undefined, if you will. But the market gives them a free pass. The market says, we think this is so cool that uh, this is going to be such a big thing that we're just going to not ask you to make any money right now because we think there's the, 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 the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is so big. Well, what if the market suddenly starts saying, actually, we'd kind of like to see you make money now? That's a big change, okay. <laughs> right, if you've had no equity risk premium applied to you. Right. So that's one side of the ledger. Now, again, we don't participate over there. Now, there's a flip side, which is the more physical economy businesses, whether you're you know, a bank or an energy producer or a manufacturer of cars or, or widgets or whatever, where no one was giving you an equity risk holiday in the first place. So there's already been a risk premium in place. Now, could that risk premium go higher? Yeah, but your downside is a lot less to begin with if there's already been an equity risk premium in place. So that all holds together. I think what you're seeing at the moment is just because of a whole variety of factors that we may or may not be able to get into on this, investors are kind of lunging at stuff and I think that will continue. So maybe it's a bear market as the Fed gets into quantitative tightening, as it's called, or alternatively, maybe it's a very rotational market and you kind of don't want to be a momentum guy. You just want to you know, sell the rips and buy the dips is the expression. Oh, that's great. That makes sense. Stepping outside of the U.S. for a moment, You've recently written a a blog about the Ukraine conflict and discussed earlier about China's about face in regards to their ideology towards free markets. Have these risks been elevated recently, tempered, or have they stayed the same for the most part? (laughs) (laughs) Elevated would be the answer to that question. (laughs) Um, The the situation with you, we we wrote something and we, we, at this point, I think need to revise what we said about Ukraine because we did not think Putin was going to go for a full-blown, you know, World War II-style land war, and that's exactly what he's done. If, for the moment, we assume that that Russia remains a pariah state to the world as a result of this, it does have pretty meaningful supply chain implications. It does look to me like some of the critical supplies, so people have been worried about hydrocarbons, and there's a few other industrial metals that Russia is a big supplier of they will just go a different way. So Russia will barter with China, Russia will barter with India, Russia will barter with a few other countries, selling its, its cargoes, probably at some kind of deep discount. We, we have been able to confirm that they are doing some of that now and using gold as a transaction currency. 
that looks like how things are going to go. So let me take a like a large step backwards to like the the fifty thousand foot level. So I, I happen to start my professional career at the end of the nineteen. 80s, right when the Berlin Wall fell and the, the Soviet Union was, was dissolved. And there was a view at that time that there was an inevitable convergence of the world's economic systems towards something that was a free market system that resembled the United States. Because the U.S. had, had won and these other systems were, were proven failures. And that thought, that motivated a lot of international investing back then. And it, it really was viewed as inevitable and, you know, you have to really kind of scan the memory banks a little bit here. But, you know, prior to that time, we spoke of the world as being a first world of the West and a handful of countries in Asia, a second communist world that was in its own transactional bubble that didn't really transact other than on a barter arrangement with other countries. And then you had a third world of less developed countries. And, and it, it all seemed ridiculous because it was, but that's how the world operated during the Cold War. And it looks like we're actually going to go back to that. I can scarcely believe those words are coming out of my mouth because it's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But that is kind of the direction that, that things are going. And, you know, one difference between Cold War I and Cold War II, if that's what we're going into here in Cold War I, the USSR was the senior partner. China was kind of the junior partner. It's the opposite now. China is the senior partner, the USSR or Russia and friends is, is kind of the junior partner. But that is what it, it looks like for the time being. And I think you need to invest accordingly. Now, we talked a lot about China in our, in our last podcast and some previous ones. They took an ideological turn under Xi Jinping that has manifested in them uh, really trying to restrict the profitability of its largest companies as well as the degree of freedom that they can operate with. So as a shareholder, you, you, do, you, do, not, you do not enjoy normal shareholder rights at all. Uh, there's no sign that they're backing off of that. Um, that means that you're at risk, essentially, in large companies. They're now doing other things as it relates to, to COVID, and you know, COVID is now in the past tense, I think, in, um, in the Western world, that are consistent with a totalitarian mindset. And it is, again, hard to believe I'm even saying this, but basically, you know, we have vaccines that work and will, will keep you from dying or, or being severely sick. China has some vaccines too, but they don't work very well. Rather than signing up for the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna vaccine, they will do neither. And instead are locking people in their homes where they're starving and they will keep doing this, it seems, until they actually have a homegrown vaccine that they can give to their populations. If this sounds insane, it's because it is, but that is what they're doing. And it looks like now the second world is this illiberal axis. It's not a communist axis, but an illiberal axis of, of China, Russia, and a few other countries that are in Eurasia. How this evolves from here, Jim, I don't know. But there's an investable universe in Western Europe, in, in Australia, in Canada, in Japan, and, and we will continue to uh, try to operate sensibly within those confines. Shifting back to the U.S. market, now that companies are starting to report earnings, what are your thoughts broadly on the health uh, of U.S. companies? Ironically, we're discussing this today when Netflix is down over 30%. We've seen some leadership really falter from some of the stocks that have pushed this market higher for the past 10 years. Just again, with what's going on recently with earnings, uh, we'd appreciate your thoughts there. Certainly. So there are some 
similarities to the end of the 1990s and the, the shift from what was a uh, internet and digital economy mindset to a more physical economy and industrial economy mindset that, that erupted right after uh, Y2K uh, happened. Back in the late 1990s, you had a lot of companies that were just flat out speculative fluff. And those pancaked and you know, went down 80 or 90%. There were other companies that were blue chip companies at the time. You know, I'm thinking of like Cisco and Microsoft and, and Intel and America Online that were real companies. But the, the issue was that the projections were just totally out of hand. Okay? They had experienced very rapid growth in the late 1990s as the internet boom happened. And then once you got to a certain point, which for the most part was the beginning of the year 2000, that growth tapered off sharply. They were real companies. Cisco was a real company. Intel was a real company that you know, are very profitable to this day, but the projections were just very wrong. Netflix is one of many companies that experienced hypernormal growth during the pandemic they pulled forward a lot of growth into 2020 and 2021 that would have happened at a much more gradual pace had we not all been stuck at home, bored, looking for something to do. And Netflix clearly offered you something to do. What you now have, this, this is, it's kind of reminiscent of network switching uh, gear back in the uh, early 2000s. You probably have too many streaming platforms. Not a lot of people are going to pay for five or six separate streaming subscriptions. Actually, I saw a survey today that suggested that 45% of people are looking to cut the number of streaming subscriptions that they have. That's a a challenging formula. Mm -hmm. So it's going to take a while to to rebase. And some of these subscription platforms are probably going to have to go away. I don't think Netflix is going away, but it's going to take a while to, to find what the equilibrium really is. Obviously, we're a little bit biased here with respect to being a fundamental bottom-up manager here at Cambiar, but when you talk about this shift in sentiment, all the volatility we're experiencing, interest rates moving, you know, how, what are your thoughts with respect to how active management can perform in that environment? It seems conducive to taking advantage of those types of opportunities. That's uh, definitely how we're looking at it, Jim. You know, it, it could be a bear market or it could just be a rotational market. And in a rotational market, if you're momentum-oriented, you're, you're probably going to get ground to a pulp. If you're in an index, you're probably looking at going sideways at best for a while. The, the fangs, or what used to be called the fangs, are you know, there's, there's something like 25 to 30% of the S&P 500. So you're very concentrated in, in that group. I think just having a price discipline, there's a price at which I buy XYZ stock and it's got a margin of safety and it's got a big fat equity risk premium in it. I like that. And conversely, there's a price where I say, I don't want to own this anymore. It's just too expensive. Not my thing. That is, that is capable of working. And that's, that's what we were dealing with for most of the decade of the 2000s and, until the housing bubble blew everything up. So I, I think there's a good chance that we go back to that. Great. Thanks, Brian. We appreciate you coming back so soon to discuss current market conditions and your outlook. Hopefully these next three months can provide a little bit more stability and clarity for investors. To our listeners out there, thank you for your support. And please visit cambr.com to learn more about the content we mentioned earlier in the show. I'm your host, Jim Stamper. And until next time, take care.